The Alchemical Tech Revolution is sponsored by Spotify for podcasters. Hi, friends. This is Wayne McCroy, host of the Alchemical Tech Revolution podcast. Spotify for podcasters is now available for use by anyone out there who's interested in producing, monetizing, and distributing their podcast. You can have access to some of the best tools in the industry using Spotify for podcasters. Go to podcasters.spotify.com for more details. Chemical Tech Revolution, and I am your host, Wayne McCroy. Good evening, everyone. Tonight, a brief history of the UFO contactee movement. Perhaps you've heard of the UFO contactee movement and its beginnings in the 1950s. Perhaps you haven't. Maybe you don't know anything about that. Well, we're going to go through the history of what is the accepted narrative in ufology of what they call the contactee movement and many of the things that have been done in the name of UFO research through the decades here. Well, I think it's a relevant subject because we're seeing an awful lot of this pushed in the mainstream today. They are pushing very heavily this UFO alien narrative. And in my view, I think it's a total psyop, because when you see it coming through the mainstream media, through your television set, you can rest assured that it is 95% likely to be based upon a lie or some type of fraud, regardless of what the truth of the situation is. Perhaps there is such a thing as aliens, and perhaps they have visited here, and maybe what's being said about the retrieval of non-human craft and bodies is true. But regardless of whether it's true or not, the reason why it's hitting the mainstream media right now is the important thing to understand. And in my estimation, in my opinion, from my years of study into the topic, I would say the vast majority of what's going on in the UFO movement or the ufology movement, and especially in the mainstream press today, is based upon lies and nonsense and manipulation and hearsay. A whole lot of hearsay. Now, are there such a thing as UFOs? Oh, most definitely there is. Are there spaceships, aircraft, unidentified aircraft? Most certainly there are. Are there nuts and bolts machines that cannot be identified? Certainly. Is there any evidence, any real-world evidence other than hearsay, and the misconstruing of intelligence narratives, 
that there's aliens or extraterrestrial beings that pilot these. Not so much. And that's the whole thing. We see evidence that UFOs, these craft, exist, but we have not, to this point, seen evidence that there's any such a thing as an extraterrestrial. And it's all a matter of manipulation of the language, really. Extraterrestrial means extra land masses. So, even if they are describing something as extraterrestrial, does that mean it comes from another planet way out there somewhere? Not necessarily. Are there different phenomena that have been observed through the years that could be called either extraterrestrial or some other type thing? Yes, these phenomena have been observed and recorded and reported, but there's no real way to prove or disprove a lot of this. It's much like ghost stories. Can you prove the existence of a ghost? Not necessarily. Can you prove the existence of any such thing? Same as the old fairy stories, the stories of fairies in the ancient world. Not even so much the ancient world, there's still a lot of modern cultures that still bring these fairy stories into the modern era. So we have them all around us, these types of notions. But is there any actual physical proof or evidence of such a thing? Has anybody adequately proven any such thing to exist? Not in an objective, scientific way. And that's what they're looking for here. They want to try to prove this to people in an objective, scientific way, but that's not coming anytime soon. What with all the whistleblower testimony and stuff that has hit the mainstream news, a lot of it is based upon hearsay and speculation with no real evidence to support it. And of course, they'll come out and say, well, the evidence for it is classified, so we, we can't show you that. That's always the, the old fallback for a lot of this stuff. It's classified, so therefore we can't talk about it. Well, you're out there talking about it. <laughs> You've blown the whistle on it, so what? what's the next step here? You see, this is where it becomes problematic. And then we have the news story where allegedly this, this thing happened in Las Vegas, where this green-looking light was observed to fall from the sky, and this uh, family reported that there were aliens in their backyard. And now, of course, we see all kinds of things floating around the Internet. Oh, here's pictures of these aliens now, even though there was no none of that recovered or reported in the original releasing of the news stories just a couple days ago. And this event happened back on May 1st, allegedly here which is interesting that it took them over a month to go ahead and report on this in today's day and age of instant information, instant communication all around the world. So the investigation process, I guess, went on for some time, and they decided that they're going to run this story now. And isn't not a coincidence that this whole alleged alien landing in a backyard in Las Vegas which, by the way, happened to happen in the viewing area of the television station of one Mr. George Knapp, who is a known UFO guy for many decades. Coincidence. Of course, just like everything else. But not only that, but apparently there's a whistleblower named David Grush going around and claiming that he was part of the UAP program, the 
unidentified aerial phenomena unit and was studying these things and came across evidence that there were other organizations and quasi-government organizations within the U.S. government that were hiding or suppressing information about retrieved spacecraft and or alien bodies. So he came forward with these claims, these whistleblower claims, when in 2021, folks, and it's only right now, coincidentally enough, just getting any kind of press here in June of 2023, along with the timing of this alleged landing in Las Vegas as well. It's all a carefully crafted script. And we'll see as the days continue on what may come of this. I would not expect anything less than more confusion and more of the usual nonsense that goes on with this stuff, because this is not something new. Although they're trying to convince you this is something new. Oh, this is the first time in history somebody of this higher rank within the auspices of the intelligence community and stuff has come forward with this information. Ever heard of a guy named Philip Corso? In 1997, he wrote a book called The Day After Roswell and made some startling claims in there. This is nothing new, folks. Nothing new. Same old New World Order at it again. And of course, they're, they're trying to play the alien card this time. Now, is this a key up for something else, as I suspect it may be? It's possible. But they, I think they're going to try to run the gamut with this one as much as they can. They'll, they'll have much of the alternative press, of course, bamboozled with this, because I'm here talking about it now. And I'm sure there's a lot of us that are. Many who have been following the UFO phenomena for many years. And they're going to have all kinds of reaction from these people, of course. You're going to have the standard, well, we've known this for a long time, and it's about time some of this is coming. And is this finally disclosure? Is this disclosure? 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 We've been hearing this same old trope of disclosure since, oh, probably way, way back in the 1960s. It's not happening. <laughs> this is not disclosure. I'm sorry. Uh, unless something changes drastically this time, it's not disclosure on this topic. It's a psychological operation. It's a mind hook to keep you distracted while something else is going on. Watch the right hand while the left hand pulls something else. And I have my suspicions about what that is, and I may come forward with that at some time in the near future. But as for right now, just want to look at the claim itself here of the extraterrestrial phenomena, allegedly. And I, I don't accept that it's extraterrestrials in the sense that it's beings from other planets that flew through interstellar space and arrived here on the planet Earth. I don't accept that narrative. But at any rate, we have a lot of history behind some of these things and how a lot of this has been engrafted into popular culture and the UFO ufology pop culture. And it's all the same old tropes over and over again. So now you have a high-level whistleblower saying, it's true, it's true, all these things the UFO buffs have been talking about for many years now, it's finally coming to light. We have evidence of that, and we're going to bring that evidence forward. And guess what? That evidence never truly comes forward. No disclosure comes about. And, in fact, much of it winds up becoming, quote-unquote, debunked. And then people forget about it, and it gets carefully engrafted into the modern UFO mythos and becomes part 
of the cover-up. The cover-up agenda. Which there's no doubt governments and government agencies and military industrial complex agencies do cover things up for certain. What their reasons are for that, well, I'm sure they have their reasons. But uh, at any rate, it always gets engrafted into this same type of mode through this psychological operation. So we wind up no closer to any kind of disclosure with any of this stuff. And of course, you, uh, naturally, what has happened now, as I had alluded to earlier, with this claim of these aliens landing in the backyard in Las Vegas, is now there's multiple videos and pictures circulating on the internet claiming that these are pictures of those aliens in the backyard. And of course, some of them look like the tall gray beings from right out of the X-Files TV shows. And some of them look like a bunch of spider monkeys. <laughs> That's just the ones I've seen. That's just the pictures that I've seen that have come forward. So, of course, these things are going to become discredited because now there's already multiple claims that this is the picture of what was captured in that backyard in Vegas, even though it doesn't align with any of the story or the timing or anything of the sort. But, and so this is what's happening. And of course, this is just going to add fuel to the fire because now many of these things will become part of the quote-unquote debunked portion thereof. And the PSYOP goes on ad nauseum forever and ever. It's a never-ending cul-de-sac to keep your mind distracted and going down an endless loop looking at these things and coming to no actual conclusion about it. Because they will give you spurious evidence at best of anything. They'll give you all kinds of fakery and chicanery that goes along with it and discredits the whole notion until people forget about it or become so disgusted with it that they forget about it and walk away from it. So that's the whole point here. And we've seen this over and over again. That's why I thought might be good to go back and look at the UFO contactee movement. Things that have happened throughout the course of the UFO mythos of the modern era since the 1950s. So tonight, I'm going to be reading from an article that was originally printed and published in a journal called Studies in Popular Culture, Volume 17, Issue Number 2, from the year 1995, written by one Mr... Christopher Bader from the from Chapman University. And this one is called The UFO Contact Movement from the 1950s to the Present. And remember, when it's talking about the present, this was 1995 that this was published and written in. So many things have come to the forefront since then, including things like the 2001 Disclosure Project, where we, they had this press conference led by Dr. Stephen Greer, who was backed by Rockefeller Money, um, to do this, to put this thing on. And they brought forward all kinds of government, quote-unquote, whistleblowers to speak. And at this meeting, you could look up this conference. It's very well documented on YouTube. You could find it relatively easily. And that should tell you something about it. You can find it relatively easily on YouTube. Uh, so if you can find it relatively easily on YouTube, it's there for a purpose, and it's there to affect the minds of the masses. So in this conference held in Washington, D.C., this press conference, they brought forward all these UFO contactees and various government officials who claim to have worked in secret programs 
with this whole thing. And among those was one Mr. Clifford Stone, who claimed at the time that he was debriefed and read into the program because he was a special uh, semi-psychic contactor, uh, a contact point for extraterrestrials. He said at that time in the 1980s when he was read into the program, they had documented 57 different varieties of extraterrestrials that were known on planet Earth and that they were affectionately referred to within the intelligence community and those who knew about this stuff as the the Heinz 57 variety. There were 57 known races. So you have all of this stuff recorded in the UFO mythos. Is there any truth to it? I doubt it highly. Nothing has come out to verify any of those claims made by any of these alleged whistleblowers at that time, and it's still up in the air. And that was 22 years ago, and here we are 22 years later, the master builder number, and we have now this new push for the UFO phenomenon and this alien disclosure. So that being the case, you could remember that. So this this article was written before those events, okay? So let's keep that in mind. It was also written before the events that occurred with the publishing of the book by Philip Corso, The Day After Roswell, also printed before the government came out with their own official report that they called Roswell Case Closed, where they disclosed that it was the top-secret mogul weather balloon program, was the mogul spy balloon program that was the development that was being covered up at Roswell. And, of course, all the ufologists and just about everybody else says, that's nonsense, that's not what was covered up, it doesn't even make any sense. Which it doesn't, but this fed even more into the UFO mythos. Uh, so, remember, the stuff we'll be reading from is prior to that. And there's a lot there, so we're going to get right into it here, because I've already talked for almost 20 minutes about <laughs> stuff that's not even in the document here. But I think it's important that we look at this stuff today because it's relevant now simply because the mainstream media has made it relevant and of course there's a lot of us in the alternative media who have been covering this ad nauseum too and it's the same kind of thing it's a, that's por a portion of the psyop it's to keep us distracted with this and being out there telling people hey don't fall for this and i'm guilty i'm i've fallen into that trap myself i'm out there telling people don't fall for it and that's kind of feeding the energy into it a little bit, I guess you could say. Feeds into the PSYOP a little bit more. But people need to be aware. This is all nonsense. There's some other agenda at play. And like I said, I have my suspicions as to what that could be. And I'll come forward with that soon. But uh, at any rate, let's go ahead and get into the reading here so that we can understand a little something about the past. If you haven't been well-researched or read into the UFO phenomenon for the past several decades, you'll get a brief history here tonight of many of the things that have been done that have brought forward UFO culture in the modern era. So let's get into the reading here. The UFO contact movement from the 1950s to the present. In recent years, claims of UFO abduction and or contact have become an increasingly increasing fixture in the mass media. So-called reality television shows such as NBC's Unsolved Mysteries and syndicated news magazines such as Hard Copy and A Current Affair regularly feature UFO accounts. 
The syndicated sightings and Fox's encounters are entirely devoted to UFOs and other paranormal phenomena, while a popular new adventure series, The X-Files, utilizes current UFO beliefs in its storylines. Abductees, people who claim to have been kidnapped by alien beings, have appeared on talk shows such as Oprah Winfrey, Montel Williams, Mari Povich, Phil Donahue, Sally Jesse Raphael, Jenny Jones, and even Larry King Live. In fact, October 1994, we'll see the debut of Larry King's two-hour special on UFO abductions and government cover-ups, UFO Cover-Up Live from Area 51, in 1993, a movie about the supposed UFO abduction of Arizona logger Travis Walton, Fire in the Sky, became a modest hit. The attention given to claims of UFO contact will only increase with the publication of Abduction by John E. Mack, a Harvard-educated psychiatrist and author of the Pulitzer Prize-winning study of Lawrence of Arabia, A Prince of Our Disorder, Mack has become convinced of the reality of UFO abductions. In 1993, he founded the Program for Extraordinary Experience Research called PEER as a project of the Center for Psychology and Social Change affiliated with Harvard Medical School. I'm going to pause for a moment here, folks. If Harvard's involved, I can assure you there's a PSYOP involved. <laughs> Let's continue on. Researchers of popular culture should be especially interested in the UFO contact movement because of its close ties to the science fiction genre. Science fiction gave the public the idea of extraterrestrials. David Hartwell examined current UFO-based cults, such as the Aetherius Society, reaching the conclusion that such groups are turning science fiction images into reality with a vengeance. Since the beginning of the UFO movement in the late 1940s, beliefs about what the aliens are like and the purpose of their visits to Earth have changed numerous times. The first claims of extended contact with alien beings in the early 1950s were entirely different in form and content from the current frightening UFO abduction tales. This article will trace the UFO movement from its origin in 1947 to the present, explaining how its prevailing paradigms have changed. So I'm going to pause for a moment here, folks. So remember, this was written in 1995. So we're seeing in the article here, he's referencing things like the X-Files as being a new show. So understand what's been done since that time in the prevailing 28 years since 1995. There's been more that has fed the fire of the UFO culture or subculture. Let's read on here, and we'll get back to the start of all of it. Kenneth Arnold and the Flying Saucers Kenneth Arnold, an experienced civilian pilot and fire equipment salesman based out of Boise, Idaho, spent the morning of June 24, 1947, installing fire control equipment at Central Air Service in Sheehollis, Washington. Several employees informed him that a C-46 Marine transport plane had crashed somewhere in the Cascade Mountains. After installing the equipment, Arnold hopped in his plane en route to another appointment in Yakima. Intrigued by a $5,000 reward offered for the plane's discovery, he took a slight detour over Mount Rainier and made a brief search for wreckage. 
While making a 180-degree turn high over the town of Mineral, Washington, a tremendously bright flash illuminated the surface of his plane. Startled, Arnold searched the skies for the source of the flash, but could see only a single DC-4 far to his left and rear. The light flashed again, and this time he was able to determine the direction from which it came. Approximately 100 miles away from him and coming at a bearing that would pass them directly in front of his plane were nine peculiar crafts. Going to pause for a moment here, folks. A hundred miles away. So Arnold spotted these coming at a hundred miles away. How big does something have to be for you to spot it from a hundred miles, especially since visibility on a very clear day for the human eye is approximately 20 miles, is the maximum distance you can see. But I guess Kenneth Arnold <laughs> had superhuman eyes, so he was able to see these coming from a hundred miles away from him. Let's read on. At first, Arnold thought that he was observing a formation of jets until the craft drew closer and he could see they had no wing or they had wings but no tails. One of the objects was almost crescent-shaped with a small dome midway between the wingtips. The others were flat like a pie pan with a reflective surface. Their manner of flight was equally strange, like speedboats on rough water. The craft seemed to be coming from nearby Mount Baker area and stayed close to the mountaintops, weaving around the higher peaks. Arnold managed to clock their speed at roughly 1,600 miles per hour, nearly three times faster than conventional aircraft in the 1940s. Going to pause for a moment here, folks. So this account differs from some other. He didn't actually clock their speed. He made an assumption of what their speed was. He made an estimate as to what their speed must have been, based upon an estimate of what he thought their size was. And this account claims that he spotted them from 100 miles out. So you see different narratives attached to this story, and you get different versions of this story, depending upon where it's coming from. So this version is making some contradictory claims to others, because the others wouldn't claim that he made sight of these things from 100 miles out. And certainly, it, they acknowledged that his estimates of its speed were just simply that, estimates, that he didn't clock their speed. He didn't do such a thing. So, we have some questions as to the original incident that triggered the whole modern UFO era especially the descriptions of these craft. No other place other than this was there anywhere described that the crescent-shaped craft had a, a small dome midway between the wingtips. I hadn't seen that as part of the description that he gave originally of this. And if they're 100 miles away and approaching fast, would you be able to pick out details like that? Especially if you're flying a plane, you're moving... You have to pay attention to what you're doing, and you want to make sure you're not going to crash into something. And you have to pay attention to the aircraft around you. And he saw this and was able to pick out these types of details. I find it interesting. Let's put it that way. I find it interesting that this guy, who was just allegedly a pilot in his spare time, uh, he, he would fly around selling fire equipment 
and he had his airplane license, and he flew around the Pacific Northwest selling this stuff. But I find it interesting that he would observe and note such details. Was he indeed a trained observer? And I have heard from some other places regarding him that he was former Army intelligence. So, that being the case, you have to wonder if he had ties to the intelligence community. And certainly we see, later on, that he does have connections to the intelligence agencies. There's a a certain intelligence officer in particular he was in constant communication with from that time forward. But uh, that's neither here nor there. Let's continue reading and we'll lead into some more of the events that led into this emergence of UFO culture, the UFO popular culture. Let's continue. So, when he landed at the Pendleton, Oregon airport, Arnold described the object for a corps of eager reporters. Going to pause for a moment there, folks. So, I find it interesting that there was a corps of eager reporters waiting for his description of this UFO event he had. Isn't that intriguing that uh, no sooner he landed, there were eager reporters waiting to take his claim down? I find that a fascinating little thing as well. I mean, what's the chances, right? Let's go ahead and read on. Most famous was the term he used to describe the object's flight. They flew like a saucer would if you skipped it across the water. The press latched on to Arnold's description and created the phrase flying saucer to describe mysterious aerial objects. In recent decades, UFO, or unidentified flying object, has become the preferred term. And I'm going to pause for a moment there, folks. And they've even changed that because they've been trying to rebrand the UFO since about 2015 now. And now they call them UAPs, Unidentified Aerial Phenomena. Because the UFO term has gotten such a negative connotation or silly connotation attached to it, they're trying to rebrand UFOs into UAPs now. So even since this time, the preferred term has changed. So let's continue on. The Arnold sighting was not the first of a strange flying object in the Americas. As far back as 1492, Christopher Columbus logged his sighting of a strange light like a bad waxen candle that rose up into the sky and went out near the Bahamas. Going to pause for a moment here, folks. So this, I have heard this story before, and this may be a legitimate uh, historical event that had happened. Uh, Perhaps he did see a light fly up out of the sea and take off into the sky. That's what the, the claim was. But, of course, this was only a note in his logbook. Nothing else ever came of it. I would think that that would be an important event, especially in the year 1492 when there's nothing flying in the skies or nothing that, you know, has that type of luminescence to it in the flying up out of the sea and into the sky. um, I would think that would be something hugely important and not just a side note in his notes, in his journal, his ship's log. Uh, But, you know, people have debated this for many years now. And it's not something that has any resolution to it. So let's continue on. Throughout the 18th and 19th century, there were isolated reports of strange flying objects. In the 1800s, the U.S. experienced its first major UFO wave. Although it was still several years before the first documented flights of airplanes and dirigibles, 
Witnesses from Northern California to Canada reported flying cigar-shaped objects. During one especially impressive sighting in November of 1896, a strange light, behind which some witnesses claimed to see a dark body structure, passed over Sacramento, California. The light was later seen about 20 miles west in Folsom and the San Francisco area. Although a few people claimed the airships were craft from another planet, the predominant theory in the 19th century was that they were the creation of a secret inventor. In most of the cases in which witness claims claimed to have seen a landed airship, they reported that the occupants were human in appearance. As technology changed, so did the popular explanations for the mysterious craft's origins. During World War II, numerous Allied pilots reported strange objects tailing their planes, leading to fears that UFOs might be the secret weapons of an enemy power. However, after Arnold's sighting of craft with capabilities far beyond that of conventional aircraft, researchers began to consider the possibility that UFOs were of extraterrestrial origin. His experience almost single-handedly brought UFOs into the space age. And I'm going to pause for a moment right there, folks. So, there is an interesting history. In the late 1800s, we did have here in America, and apparently in some other places around the world, this mystery airship flap had happened. Where these strange craft, most of them were described as looking like dirigibles, if you go back and look at the actual descriptions and accounts. And some of it was just the newspapers trying to make headlines to draw attention to certain places and areas of the country. And copycat reports happened, if you go and you research this. So maybe there was some real phenomena there that people were observing, but by and large, mostly what they reported were these mystery airships. They didn't describe them as being non-human craft uh, of inexplicable variety. They looked like dirigibles like some type of a balloon. They traveled very slowly. They weren't fast-moving craft. They certainly didn't do 1,600 miles an hour. Let's put it that way. So this was a phenomena that happened in another time, for another era, for another culture, back before the modern technology that we have now. So the way they described things and looked at things was different. Their paradigm was different. And it is an interesting phenomena to take a look at because it certainly has been recorded and you can go back and look at the old newspaper articles and stuff about that at the time. But if you want to be honest about it, what do we know about the media? It was the same back then as well. You had very few people controlled the printing press at that time to put the newspapers out there. Same thing, and that was the primary source of news. Much like today, we have different news outlets through the internet and through television that we see as being the reliable sources of news. And they have their different field locations where certain things happen, and there's a local flair and flavor to everything. But it's all disseminated from the same select few places. So a lot of this probably went on in the 1800s as well with the newspapers and the printing press. So a lot of these stories we get of the airships in the different markets were probably based upon some of the same releases from the top down 
and probably we see some of these events being reported and there wasn't any truth to them whatsoever, was just to maybe draw tourists to the area. This was the case in many of the instances, if you go back and look at this. But it was an interesting era in history. And yes, UFOs do predate the modern era, no doubt about that. But when the media gets involved, know that there's some some other agenda at play. But let's continue on now. So now we're moving away from the event, this Arnold, Kenneth Arnold sighting, which allegedly kicked off the modern UFO era. And now we're going to move into the 1950s, just slightly a few years later. George Adamski and the contactees. When the popular impression of UFOs changed from German or Japanese secret weapons to vehicles from another planet, the public's fears changed as well. Some feared that UFOs would stage an invasion of Earth. Such fears resembled back back to Orson Welles' infamous 1938 broadcast of H.G. Wells' War of the Worlds, which caused a panic when thousands of listeners became convinced that the show was chronicling real events. In the 1950s, UFO invasion films such as Earth vs. the Flying Saucers and Invasion of the Saucer Men were quite popular. In UFO invasion films, aliens alternately wanted to enslave us, eat us, or kidnap our women. The day the Earth stood still, in which Earthlings shoot a peaceful alien, remains a notable exception to the early saucer paranoia. Surprisingly, given the pop culture response to UFO reports, the first person to claim extended interaction with aliens said that they were friendly, helpful, even noble beings. In 1952, George Adamski collaborated with author Desmond Leslie on Flying Saucers Have Landed, which told his true story of a series of philosophical contacts with men from Venus, Mars, and Jupiter. Adamski was the first of what would later be many contactees, a label given to people who claimed friendly extended encounters with alien beings. Going to pause for a moment here, folks. So here we have the beginnings of what I would call the PSYOP associated with this phenomena and with convincing people that aliens from other planets have traveled here and have been here. Prior to that, people speculated that maybe there was life on other planets, but by and large, nobody had ever claimed to see much of anything like that. And perhaps there are some historical documentations of such things, but they were few and far between, and it wasn't accepted as a normal part of popular culture in those times because they were more concerned with important things, real-world problems. So even if you go back and look at the ancient philosophers, maybe they considered such things as being possibilities, but they didn't really give much credence to the idea that these other planets or these bodies, these luminaries in the sky, they didn't give much credence to the fact that the luminaries in the sky could possibly be other worlds or planets. They did say as much and that they may be populated, but they didn't postulate that they could get in some kind of a magic spaceship and fly here from there. They didn't acknowledge that you can travel between these worlds in some conventional fashion. 
So with that being the case, uh, it was a different way of thinking in the modern era, especially post-World War II now. And when these things were spotted up until that point, uh, when they had many sightings of what they called Foo Fighters during World War II, well, the Allied forces thought they were German weapons, and the Germans thought they were Allied weapons of some sort. So, the paranoia, as always, was deep. And there's a whole mythos that goes along with Nazi saucers as well. Uh, but that's a topic for another day. But let's get back into the reading here, because this is about the UFO contactee phenomena, or the contactee movement as it came to be known. So, let's read on here. A Polish immigrant born in 1891, Adamski joined the U.S. Cavalry in 1913, serving until an honorable discharge in 1916. From 1916 to 1926, he worked as a painter and maintenance worker in Yellowstone National Park. Fancying himself a sort of wise man or teacher, Adamski started teaching the philosophy of a mysterious group of cosmic wise men called the Royal Order of Tibet in 1926. I'm going to pause for a moment here, folks. So most assuredly, Adamski had ties to the secret society groups. Let's keep that in mind as well here. Let's read on. By 1940, he had settled in Valley Center near Mount Palomar and worked as a cook in the small cafe owned by one of his students, Alice K. Wells. Mount Palomar was home to, at this time, the world's largest telescope. An avid astronomy buff, Adamski spent hours looking through his own small telescope in a personal observatory he constructed. During a spectacular meteor shower in October of 1946, Adamski had his first sighting of a quote-unquote spaceship, an object that he says, quote, similar in shape to a gigantic dirigible, end quote. Adamski reported many more sightings, but his most spectacular occurred on a Friday evening in August of 1946, when he and a group of friends watched 184 saucers broken into squadrons of 52 parade through the sky. going to pause for a moment here, folks. Um, I'm not exactly a math whiz, but I think if you multiply 52 by 3, you'll get, what, 156. Uh, add another 52 to that, and that's more than 184 saucers. So um, something's not right with the math here, but <laughs> let's go ahead and continue on. We'll give them the benefit of the doubt. So they watched 184 saucers that were broken, broken into squadrons of 52, and they paraded through the sky. Let's read on. After his initial sightings, Adamski made frequent trips to the desert near his home in hopes that the spaceships might choose to land in a less populated area. In August of 1952, a Mrs. A.C. Bailey from Winslow, Arizona, contacted him, indicating her interest in joining his desert forays. Going to pause for a moment here, folks. So right now, right away, you know something's up with this guy. He decides ahead of time, hey, I'm going to go wander out in the desert and hope that one of these saucers lands there someday. And sure enough... <laughs> According to Adamski, it, it happened at one point. Uh, so let's go ahead and read on here. On November 20th, 1952, Adamski, his secretary Lucy McGinnis, Alice Wells, the Baileys, and a Prescott, Arizona couple, Mr. and Mrs. George Williamson, made a day trip into the barren areas near Desert Center in California. 
The group spent the day exploring until about noon, when they sat down to eat some lunch. At that time, a plane passed low over their heads, drawing their attention to a gigantic cigar-shaped silvery ship without wings or appendages of any kind that was hovering nearby. The cigar-shaped ship sped away after a brief period of time. After about five minutes, a smaller saucer-shaped craft appeared and settled into a cove about a half a mile from Adamski's location, who had distanced himself from the rest of the group in hopes of getting closer to the craft. As he busied himself taking pictures, Adamski suddenly noticed a man standing at the entrance of a ravine about a quarter of a mile away. Upon approach, he realized that the being was from another world. Gonna pause for a moment here, folks. How he knew this, you got me. Upon approach, he realized that it was a being from another world. Well, isn't that wild? He's out there in the desert looking for beings from other worlds, and he breaks off from the rest of the group, and he finds a being from another world. How coincidental, right? Let's read on here. The space person was about 5 feet 6 inches tall and weighed about 135 pounds. <laughs> Gonna pause for a moment here, folks. What did he ask him? How much he weighs? <laughs> or here, step on the scale so I know how much you weigh. <laughs> Let's read on. His skin appeared suntanned. His face, framed by shoulder-length brown hair, was rounded with an extremely high forehead and large grayish-green eyes that were slightly slanted at the outside. The only clothing he wore was a one-piece chocolate-brown jumpsuit-style garment. Adamski's description of the alien became the model for contactees for the years to follow. Nearly every contactee described their space friends the same way. All details from the jumpsuit to the shoulder-length hair remained the same in most cases. Gonna pause for a moment here, folks. And that, my friends, is how you can tell the hallmarks of a psyop. This guy set the example, and then everybody else followed suit with their stories of the benevolent space brothers. And we still have some of this going on today. <laughs> we really do. Perhaps I'll do another show sometime soon about the nonsensical nature of some of what the contactee movement talks about as these benevolent space brothers and uh, the uh, different factions to which they represent, like like Ashtar Command and stuff like this and all of these different nonsensical things that are talked about within these the auspices of these groups, and they, they swear this is absolute truth and veritas, but uh, it sounds to me more like a psyop. But let's continue reading. The being could not speak English, so he and Adamski communicated through hand signals and telepathy. Well, that's handy. <laughs> In summary, the alien indicated that he was part of a friendly procession from Venus who had come to Earth out of concern for our recent nuclear testing. Earth, he warned, was in danger of destroying itself and surrounding planets. Soon, the being indicated that he had to leave, and he returned to his craft, which sped away. At that point, Adamski took plaster casts of the being's footprints and received affidavits from the others present, who swore to have seen the being and his craft from afar. Gonna pause for a moment here, folks. So the cult leader, with a couple of his cult members... Uh, had them swear that they saw this in a legal affidavit. Uh, so here we have this notion here. Somehow he was able to communicate with this this being that didn't speak the same language, but somehow he knew that he was here to warn us about the nuclear weapons. Do you, are you beginning to see more agenda at play with this? 
It's the fear card, as always. Oh, it's nuclear annihilation. It's the big problem. And that's a lot of what underlies the early days of the UFO phenomena in the 1950s and the 1960s and throughout the Cold War. And this was an acknowledged psychological operation from the CIA and other groups. They saw benefits in perhaps promoting the ideology of extraterrestrials that could give them an air of plausible deniability as to the development of their secret weapons in the battle in the Cold War, give them justification for developing high-tech weapons and covering them up under the guise of, oh, I don't know what that is, that must be aliens, and pushing the alien notion. And this is acknowledged in CIA documentation, you can find it out there, that they took advantage of this situation and used it for psychological operations, uh, supposedly against the Soviets and against enemies of our nation for national security purposes. So they, they promulgated and promoted the idea that perhaps extraterrestrials were here flying around in our skies to disguise some of the military programs they had going on. So, you know, make your own conclusions about that. But let's continue on, because we got more to cover here. So... Flying Saucers Have Landed, the book written by Adamski, made Adamski a celebrity. He followed its success with Inside the Spaceships, which chronicled even more spectacular adventures with the spacemen. No kidding. In his second book, Adamski gives the being he met in 1952 the name Orthon, and meets a Martian named Furkan, and a Saturnian named Ramu. As did Orthon, Ramu, and Furkan resembled Earthlings in every way. The beings spoke near-perfect English by this point and told Adamski that they now lived on Earth, passing as humans. They managed to hold down jobs by visiting their home planets only during work holidays. Gonna pause for a moment here, folks. So, they came here and they stole our jobs. <laughs> and then you wonder where they get the notion of, uh, you know, the open borders from Mexico and stuff. They're gonna come here and steal our jobs. Uh, we don't need to be worried about that. It's those those Venetians, Venusians, and Martians, and Jupiterians, and Saturnians. They're coming here stealing our jobs, right? <laughs> so anyway, uh, but but they did sneak home during work holidays, which, which is nice, I guess. Uh, but let's go ahead and read on. Perhaps the most spectacular adventure Adamski recounts in Inside the Spaceships is his saucer ride to a giant mothership hovering above the Earth, where he met two gorgeous space women, Kalna and Ilbeth, and a thousand-year-old Venusian wise man who told him that man could take his rightful place in the cosmos if he could only learn to love his brother. Isn't that nice? All light and love, isn't it? All this new agey <laughs> type of talk here. Uh, so you have this idea that these gorgeous Venusian women and stuff like that, gorgeous space women, uh, and a thousand-year-old Venusian guy who told him, hey, man, you know, what's groovy, uh, you guys can all be righteous and, and take your rightful place in the cosmos if you could only learn to love your brother, man. Uh, so... Uh, space hippies. We had space hippies, folks. Let's read on. All of the space brothers that Adamski met espoused a similar philosophy as the masters. Going to pause for a moment here, folks, just to make note that the word master is capitalized here. And, of course, it may be referring to this, this Venusian master that he met, the thousand-year-old wise man. But... You know what it sounds like to me? Sounds more like a bunch of theosophical nonsense going on here. 
the Theosophical Society or some such thing. He did have connections to these secret society groups. And it seems likely that this is the kind of thing he's referring to. Trying to make the embodiment of what's referred to as the Great White Brotherhood within the Theosophical mindset of these things into the Space Brothers, equating one for the other. And like I say all the time with all of this stuff, there's always, always, always the occult involved in it. And it's the same thing going on here. So it's just a switching up of the mythology of this type of thing into the acceptance in the modern era into more of our modern sensibilities. So maybe gurus who uh, come from uh, the Tibetan mountains, uh, from, uh, you know, these various places or something, or Shangri-La or some such place, maybe that doesn't jive with the modern way of thinking, but Space Brothers sure does, doesn't it? So these are the same kind of notions that they use to promote and push their ideas. Just give it different names. Put a new shiny veneer on it, make it look slightly different, but it's the same core to all of it. And that, in my view, is what's gone on here with Adamski and his description here. And there were many copycats who came forward, and many stories began to circulate about the same type of things. And, of course, then you you get what we have throughout the UFO mythos and culture, the subculture of the ufology movement and those who follow these things. But let's read on, and we'll bring it forward a little bit more here. So it continues here. It says, In many places, his books take on a neo-religious tone using extensive Christian symbolism. Among other things, the Space Brothers told him that Jesus was an alien incarnated on Earth to help humans learn to be peaceful and loving, and the biblical fallen angels are actually the universe's criminals and troublemakers, which the aliens had banished to Earth. Going to pause for a moment here, folks. Hey, thanks for doing us that favor, guys. (laughs) Like, really? (laughs) So, yeah, so you have all of this kind of as an undercurrent behind it. And I told you, as I always do, always you have the occult ties into all of this. I wish it wasn't the case, but it always does. And they always try to take on these neo-religious tones with things as well and make different claims about Jesus and different claims about biblical things, biblical stories and biblical truths. And they'll make claims about those and twist and contort those to fit whatever agenda they're promoting or to make it fit their paradigm. So let's continue reading here. Adamski's curious mixture of the sacred and the space age continued in his final book, Flying Saucer's Farewell. One lengthy chapter entitled The Bible and the UFO provides lengthy interpretations of biblical passages in an attempt to prove that references to fiery chariots actually refer to alien spacecraft. Q. Eric Von Donneken. <laughs> right? He concludes with a philosophical anecdote about the role of Satan on Earth. There have been dozens of contactees since Adamski. For example, Howard Menger, a New Jersey sign painter, claimed to have talked to the crews of flying saucers that landed many times near his home in Highbridge. The cover of 1959's From Outer Space to You depicts a gorgeous space woman that Menger met as a boy of ten. 
and it says in here, quote, She seemed to radiate and glow as she sat on the rock, and I wondered if it were due to the unusual quality of the material she wore, which had a shimmering, shiny texture, not unlike but far surpassing the sheen of nylon. The clothing had no buttons, fasteners, or seams I could discern. She wore no makeup, which would have been unnecessary to the fragile transparency of her camellia-like skin with pinkish undertones, end quote. So we have space romance here mixed in now, too, <laughs> right? So he met this woman as a boy of 10, according to his books, this menger. But we had a bunch of other figures who came forward with very similar stories to Adamski here. And you could see a lot of these were the copycat variety. And who knows, maybe these people were sincerely believing this stuff. Maybe they were delusional. Maybe they were charlatans and grifters. There's a lot of grift that has happened in the UFO community through the years. And a lot of that has sadly been adopted into much of the, the research paradigm of it all as well. And there's many people that take it seriously, some of these things. And they probably shouldn't. And of course, you waste mind cycles on a lot of this stuff when you begin chasing it down, like many of these people did. But we have here, we need to understand here, Adamski wrote his last book, Flying Saucers Farewell. And the reason he wrote this is because I guess they had to go back to their home planets. Now, they came here, they did their job, they warned mankind about the nuclear weapons, and they had to leave and go home. And they weren't going to come back. So it was up to Adamski and these contactees to warn the world. Because, you know, that's exactly how aliens would operate. They wouldn't want to come out and maybe make some type of official announcement to important leaders in the world or something like that. Or, you know, uh, communicate directly with the people through some type of technology or, you know, television broadcast or some such thing to communicate with the masses and let them know, hey, you guys are at the precipice of, of danger with your nuclear weapons and you need to stop that. No, they, they wouldn't want to do that. They'll go to some obscure dude who's wandering around in the desert and tell him, right? <laughs> Makes total sense, doesn't it? And, and this is the kind of thing that gets pushed and promoted a lot of times. Uh, so you have to look at the nonsensical nature of it all. Uh, like, it, honestly. But let's, let's continue on. So other notable contactees include Gabriel Green, who ran for president in 1960 on the advice of his space brothers, George Van Tassel, who organized several large UFO conferences in the Arizona desert after his experience, and Dr. Frankie Strangis, who claimed to have attended a meeting with a Venusian named Val Thor, or Valiant Thor, in the Pentagon. Going to pause for a moment here, folks, and that's a fascinating story, too but also one that's laced with more questions than answers and has absolutely no valid proof whatsoever of anything of the sort happening. But the guy swore it was true, and he seemed like a reasonable person. But if you question the Pentagon about that, they still to this day won't have a clue what it's all about, if there's any such thing. Uh, so we have the Venusian named Valiant Thor, or Val Thor, who actually sat in the Pentagon, an alien in the Pentagon, for a number of years. Uh, let's read on, though. The glory days for contactees, however, ended in the late 1960s. By that time, man had reached the moon and knew much more about the surrounding universe 
going to pause for a moment there, folks. Oh, did he really? <laughs> Let's continue on. We'll give him the benefit of the doubt on that, right? Claims of beautiful cities on Mars and Venus seemed naive in retrospect. Adamski's claim that he had seen the Earth as a ball of white light while in orbit on the Venusian mothership was but one notable casualty of the space program. Nevertheless, a few contactee groups have survived. In March of 1954, King jo- er, George King, a 35-year-old Londoner with an interest in the occult, was washing dishes in his apartment when a loud voice declared to him to be the voice of interplanetary parliament. (laughs) Going to pause for a moment there, folks. So, of course, a guy with an interest in the occult, a Londoner, of course, he heard a voice, a loud voice that declared to him that it was the voice of the interplanetary parliament. Uh, So, you know, I I guess I would listen if I heard such a voice, too, right? I might pay attention to what it's saying. Might be important, maybe not, or maybe it's a hallucination or something. Who knows? Uh, But, of course, this guy had interest in the occult, so he probably had ties to occult organizations. Let's read on and see. Shortly after the prophetic announcement, King began channeling cosmic masters, including Mars Sector 6, Jupiter 92, and Jesus Christ. (laughs) going to pause for a moment here, folks. So this guy, whom many of us and most of us probably never heard of in all our years, was the the communicator between, you know, the cosmic brotherhood or whatever they were and mankind. And he even channeled Jesus. Wasn't that nice? Let's read on. Formed in 1955, King's The Aetherius Society still enjoys moderate success with active branches in, get this, Hollywood, <laughs> Detroit, Toronto, London, Auckland, and Sydney. Gonna pause for a moment here, folks. That was as of 1995. I don't know if this Aetherius Society still exists today. Never heard of it. I've been researching the UFO phenomenon for many years now. I've been researching many of these other things in the occult fraternities and stuff for many years. Never heard of the Aetherius Society, so I suspect it has probably disappeared. (laughs) I could be wrong. Maybe it does still exist. But uh, at any rate, uh, channeling the Cosmic Masters, uh, I guess that's a big job. So (laughs) let's give them the benefit of the doubt and read on here. The Unarius Society, founded by Ruth and Ernest Norman in the late 60s, has also survived. Unarians believe that Ruth is the present incarnation of a supreme spiritual being who visited Earth many times before, who goes by the name of Uriel. Among the people Ruth or Uriel claims to have been in a past life are Confucius, Socrates, Henry VIII, Benjamin Franklin, Mary of Bethany, King Arthur, and Peter the Great. <laughs> that's, a, that's a pretty good resume for this Ruth person, right? I wonder if she's still alive because, you know, um, <laughs> that's, that, that's an interesting claim. At any rate, let's go ahead and read on. One of the Unarian Society's many publications, The Restoration, Accomplishments Past and Present of Prince Uriel, includes photographs of Ruth dressed as these various historic figures. <laughs> Members undergo past-life regression sessions with Ruth or Uriel, 
whatever name she decides to go by, I guess, that day, to find out about their past lives on other planets. Particularly, members hope to learn about misdeeds they may have performed in their former lifetimes you have lived on this or some other world, for such misdeeds are believed to cause problems in their present incarnation. Gonna pause for a moment here, folks. So, I guess that's a service to, you know, uh, to humanity. To be able to tell them what they did wrong in their past lives. <laughs> Isn't it? And this is the problem I have with the whole scenario of having past lives or or reincarnation. When you reincarnate into your next lifetime, you don't remember the sins of your past or what your faults were. And so you go have to go grasping at straws to try to make corrections and do it right this time. Sorry, I have a problem with that. That is not logical on the face of it. And it's not fair on the face of it. And it, that actually sounds more like a travesty to me than anything else, if that's the case. You make mistakes in a lifetime, so therefore you're punished to be have to reincarnate in this place and make things right. And you don't know what you did wrong in the past, so how do you correct that? If, if you don't know what you did wrong in the past, how do you make correction of those ways in a present life? So I guess this, if you believe that, then this woman is doing you a, a good service here by telling you what you did wrong in your, your past lives. So you could argue it either way if you want. Uh, I don't buy it. But at any rate, so a lot of this is what's associated with the UFO contactee movement. Let's read on here, and we'll get a little bit closer to the modern era. The next section here is called Kidnapped. During the late 1960s, UFO occupant reports experienced drastic changes. People started to come forward with stories of alien contact that differed greatly from the happy spiritual encounters of the contactees. While contactees espoused willing contact with human-like space brothers, this new breed claimed to have been kidnapped by inhuman alien creatures. A new name appeared in UFO circles, the abductee. In a prototypical UFO abduction account, the victim or victims see a strange object far away in the sky. The object comes closer and closer. Suddenly, the person blacks out and has no recall of the following events. The next thing that person remembers is looking at a clock and realizing that a couple of hours have passed that they cannot be accounted for. Troubled by this memory gap, or missing time as it is called in UFO circles, the victim may undergo hypnosis or other therapies to attempt to remember this period of time. Well, under hypnosis, the victim recalls that strange alien beings took him or her aboard their ship, submitting him or her to an exhaustive and often painful physical examination. The victim is then released with little or no memory of the event. Most UFO abduction researchers believe that the aliens somehow erase the victim's memory of the abduction. Gonna pause for a moment here, folks. So... Can aliens make you forget things? <laughs> is this something that is a known technology, or is there a known methodology to do this? Well, one of those methods is hypnosis. <laughs> Ironically enough, so, uh, you know, you could also implant false memories through hypnosis. Uh, so, you know, maybe there's something to that notion, the occult connotation of hypnosis and how it can be used to implant certain memories or to make you forget certain things. It could work both ways. 
And once again, it's one of those designations where it lacks physical evidence to support notions in that way. If you're remembering something, maybe you're remembering it wrong. Maybe it's a false memory. Or maybe it's a real memory that's suppressed. You know, it's all kinds of things. Maybe you're just misremembering, as they claim with the whole Mandela effect thing. Oh, you're just misremembering. That's what the mainstream declaration is on that. Oh, it's just, you know, you're misremembering things. It's confabulation. Maybe it is, maybe it's not. I, I suspect there's more to it than that. But that's a subject for another day as well. But we have this this trope that goes on with the UFO abduction phenomenon. So we see here in the 1960s, we had a, a vast shift over from the, uh, the Space Brother hippie type notion of extraterrestrials. Now we have towards the late 60s as we get into the era of the 1970s and all of the trauma the collective trauma of those times, talking about the Vietnam War era and those types of events, we have this shifting into a darker type paradigm from the, the peace, light, and love uh, hippie extraterrestrials that came down. So now we have the abduction phenomenon going on, something more sinister, something a little darker. And we have seen this crossover between the decades of the types of energies that are present. So uh, the 60s, was a vast melting pot of these energetic principles taking place. So we went from this kind of uh, positive, upbeat vibe to a more negative one really fast. And this occurs in the UFO narrative here as well. So let's read on. So the next thing we'll talk about are the Betty and Barney Hill case. The fantastic story of Betty Hill, New Hampshire's social worker, and her husband Barney, a postal officer, set the prototype for abduction accounts. In September of 1961, the Hills were returning home from a vacation in Canada. At some point during their drive, Betty noticed a white star in the sky, which seemed to be following their car. After a long chase, during which they became extremely frightened, the couple stopped their car near North Woodstock. Barney got out and watched through binoculars as the object tilted downward and started descending. He was able to see a row of lighted windows behind which stood several figures wearing shiny black uniforms and black caps. Fearing the creatures were going to trap him, Barney panicked and jumped back into his car. Suddenly, the hills found themselves at a point further down the road. When they arrived home, they realized their journey had taken a couple of hours longer than it should. Betty began to have nightmares about strange faces and medical examinations, which became so upsetting that the couple sought help from Dr. Benjamin Simon, a Boston psychiatrist, who chose to utilize hypnosis as a means of relieving the couple's anxieties. Since the Hills were a mixed racial couple in the turbulent 60s, Simon felt that their stresses might stem from the societal pressures on such a relationship. Much to his surprise, under hypnosis, Barney and Betty told him a bizarre story of being taken aboard a landed flying saucer by strange men. Under hypnosis, the couple said the object had landed, disgorging several creatures who escorted the hills into the craft. Barney described the strange men for Dr. Simon, quote, They had rather odd-shaped heads with a large cranium diminishing in size as it got towards the chin. 
and the eyes continued around to the sides of the head, so it appeared that they could see several degrees beyond the lateral extent of our vision. The texture of the skin was grayish, almost metallic-looking. I didn't notice any hair, and there just seemed to be two slits that represented nostrils." End quote. Once aboard the craft, the beings subjected the couple to a series of strange examinations. Barney was placed on a table that was too short for his body and prodded with several different objects. The creatures pulled out his false teeth. They seemed unable to fathom why Betty's teeth could not also be removed. Betty, whose account of the examination was much more detailed than Barney's, said that the beings poked her with several different strange instruments, pulled hair from her head, and took skin scrapings and nail clippings. During her examination, Betty conversed with an alien who appeared to be the leader. When she asked the leader where he was from, he produced a star map, which she later reproduced while under hypnosis. Going to pause for a moment here, folks, and this becomes a famous moment in the UFO lore when she draws this star map, and apparently it's the Zeta Reticuli system, of which uh, at the time she drew it, they didn't know there was another star there. You'll see this if you watch the History Channel after 10 o'clock at night when it becomes like Star Wars based and stuff. <laughs> You'll see all this stuff on Ancient Aliens uh, because Giorgio Tsoukalos has big hair. Uh, so it, it all makes sense. It's okay. Trust me. Go ahead and watch it. Beautiful cinematography on the show, by the way. But uh, anyway, let's, let's continue reading here. Dr. Simon remains skeptical as to the reality of the Hill's story. He believed that the abduction was a shared delusion based on Betty's nightmare that manifested under hypnosis. Simon noted inconsistencies in the couple's stories. For example, Betty noted that the creatures spoke English, but Barney said they did not have mouths, which are characteristic of dreams. Despite his reservations, Dr. Simon collaborated with The Hills and journalist John Fuller on a book about their experiences, The Interrupted Journey, Two Lost Hours Aboard a Flying Saucer. The book was a bestseller. The Hills were suddenly celebrities, their story known the world over. Perhaps the single most important feature of the Hill case was their initial amnesia about their experience. Neither Betty and Barney remembered the abduction until after they underwent hypnotic regression, though they did have strange nightmares. Abduction researchers alternately argue that UFO-related memory loss occurs as a result of the alien's intervention, i.e., the aliens make the victim forget, and that the memory loss occurs as a reaction to extreme trauma. Regardless, the phenomenon of amnesia following a UFO experience or missing time became the central feature of most, but not all, abduction accounts. So I'm going to pause for a moment there, folks. So we see this notion, even today, related to this strange abduction phenomenon, and there's many different versions of it. But we're just giving the brief history here of how UFO culture the popular culture surrounding UFOs has changed through the years and how we've seen a lot of this used before. A lot of these same tropes before, a lot of these same psychological operations before. Let's go ahead and read on. So what do they look like? From the late 1970s through the early 1980s, UFO contact cases once again went through pronounced changes. First of all, the UFO community came to a much-needed, albeit forced, consensus as to what the aliens looked like. 
One of the strongest arguments against the reality of UFOs is the lack of consensus amongst reports, especially those involving reported sightings of alien beings. To be sure, most contactees reported visitations with tall, blonde, Aryan humanoid beings, but most ufologists did not take the pseudo-religious contactee reports seriously. Other sightings of reported alien beings exhibited a startling, even embarrassing, diversity. On November 16, 1963, four witnesses in Sandling Park in Kent in England saw an oval-shaped object land near some trees, after which a human-sized black figure, headless, with webbed feet and wings like a bat, shuffled toward them. In September of 1973, a family in Sydney, North Carolina, reported a being with glowing red eyes, pointed ears, long hair, a hooked nose, and gray skin. A month later, on October 16th, a copper-colored UFO swooped down over Watuga, Tennessee, and a tall creature with claw-like hands and wide, blinking eyes attempted to grab several children. That same day, witnesses reported that a UFO landed on a highway in Mississippi. Occupants of one car reported a humanoid with a wide mouth webbing between its legs and flipper feet. <laughs> the next day, near Chatham, Virginia, two boys were chased by a three to four foot tall eyeless white thing that ran sideways. In November 1973, Florence Dow of New Hampshire encountered a creature wearing a black coat and a wide brim hat pulled down over a face that looked as if it had been covered with masking tape. Gonna pause for a moment here, folks. So that's that's a pretty broad category of different looks that, that have been reported with many of these things up until that time. But here's the thing. Popular culture has adopted a particular variety of alien that has become the one that's most centrally known here. So let's read on. The above examples should serve to illustrate the diversity in reports of the appearance of aliens, but they are just the tip of the proverbial iceberg. Witnesses have reported giants and dwarves, hairy creatures and bald creatures, creatures with three legs and creatures with none. In other words, reports of UFO occupants used to differ as widely as the human imagination, which served to damage their credibility. Curiously, American UFO researchers have reacted much differently to the total lack of consistency in UFO reports than those in other countries. Many UFO researchers in France and England have entirely rejected the notion that UFOs are simply visitors from another planet. Rather, they relate UFO stories to the fairy encounters of old, noting regional differences in the form and content, and suggest that such encounters are very personal and related to the needs of the witness. Most American UFO researchers, however, are unwilling to entertain such a hypothesis, preferring the more exciting theory that UFOs are objectively real visitors from the stars. It should be of no surprise, then, that Americans have attempted to force homogeneity into the reports of UFO occupants. Going to pause for a moment here, folks. So homogenization of the reports. They want to make it one image. They need to make an image for the alien being and present this one unified image. Let's read on. 
1987, Walt Andrews, director of the Mutual UFO Network, the United States' largest UFO research organization, announced that after studying thousands of UFO occupant encounters, he had come to the conclusion that a paltry four types of alien beings are visiting Earth. A small humanoid, an experimental animal, a human-like entity, and the robot. Andrews provided precise descriptions of each creature. Apparently, he conveniently forgot about the long-haired, hook-nosed creature of Sydney, North Carolina, and Florence Dow's dapper, masking-tape-covered rogue, among others. In fact, pronouncements such as these from major researchers in the UFO field have served to homogenize UFO reports. Those reports that match the preferred descriptions are heavily publicized. Those that do not are considered hoaxes or ignored altogether. And I'm going to pause for a moment here, folks. That's because the whole UFO research community has been infiltrated by intelligence operatives that want to push forward certain notions here, social agendas, social engineering goals, and only produce information that supports one particular narrative. Let's read on here. Most recently, American UFO researchers have focused on but one creature dubbed the Gray. The Gray closely resembles the creatures encountered by Travis Walton, short in stature, with white or gray skin, a large head with huge cat-like eyes, a slit mouth and small nostrils, and thin clawed limbs. It would be impossible to overestimate the prominence of the gray stereotype in UFO circles. Its image is plastered across the cover of most every UFO magazine and book. It has appeared in movies such as Close Encounters and countless television UFO documentaries. In recent years, the gray has made an even stronger appearance in the American popular culture. A 1991 episode of the Fox Situation comedy, Married with Children, featured gray-type creatures stealing Al Bundy's socks. I'm going to pause for a moment here, folks. I remember that episode. It was hysterical. <laughs> but you see how they use popular culture as a programming motif here as well. But let's read on. It says a 1992 beer commercial featured the beings cavorting about a field drinking beers. An artist enters the fray. Although the descriptions of aliens in early abduction reports widely differed, most UFO researchers now believe the gray is responsible for UFO abductions. The person most directly responsible for fostering this notion is a New York artist named Bud Hopkins. Going to pause for a moment here, folks. Bud Hopkins is one of the best-known and well, most well-respected UFO researchers in the past several decades. And that being the case, he's had a huge amount of influence within the UFO community. And likewise, I suspect he had connections to the intelligence community and or the secret society groups and was one of the primary social engineers running point on this promotion of one type of homogenized alien being being represented as the picture or the image that mankind is supposed to accept as an alien being. Let's continue reading, though. Born in West Virginia in 1931, Hopkins graduated from Oberlin College in 1953 before moving to New York City. 
He is a nationally recognized painter and sculptor who, whose works are displayed in the Museum of Modern Art, Guggenheim, Carnegie Mellon, and many other prominent museums and art collections. But despite, despite his standing in the art community, whenever he is invited to appear on national talk shows, his beliefs about UFO abductions are the topic of conversation. Hopkins' interest in UFOs stems from one August day in 1964 when he and two friends had sighted a darkish elliptical object in the sky off of Cape Cod. The object was about two car lengths long. Hopkins and his friends concluded that the object was a UFO since it remained stationary as the wind blew clouds past it. After his sighting, Hopkins began to read about UFOs with much interest. Over the next decade, he followed the case of Betty and Barney Hill and the few other abductees that had appeared. By the mid-1970s, he was actively involved in investigating UFO cases which involved missing time. He often enlisted the help of mental health professionals to hypnotize witnesses in hopes of aiding their recall. In 1981, Hopkins' first book about his investigations into UFO abductions, Missing Time, documented stories of people kidnapped by UFOs and then returned with their memories erased, appeared. Missing Time became a bestseller and forever changed the way in which the UFO community would view abductions. The first revelation contained in Missing Time is that one need not remember having seen a UFO to be a possible abduction victim. I'm going to pause for a moment here, folks. It could happen to anybody, and you wouldn't even know it. <laughs> Isn't that something? You could be abducted by aliens and not even know anything had happened. Now, that's, that's all part of this, too. And you have to instill that kind of fear into people, that lack of control into their psyches. Let's read on. All of the UFO abductions reported by the media up to this point conformed to a general pattern. A witness spots a UFO or occupants and then blacks out. Upon reawakening, that person immediately realizes that they have some missing time and seeks a UFO researcher or therapist to help them recall that missing period. One of Hopkins' first cases convinced him that a person could have been abducted without any knowledge of the event. In the late 1970s, Hopkins learned of a young man named Steve Kilburn, and that's, excuse me, that's a pseudonym, that's not the guy's real name, who was deathly terrified about a certain stretch of road he used to pass through on his way to his girlfriend's house in Maryland. Kilburn wanted to use hypnosis to find the reason behind his fear. He suspected he might have been abducted. Gonna pause for a moment here, folks. Okay, so now... We have a pseudonym. We have somebody that may or may not actually exist showing up in Hopkins' book here. And he had this unexplained fear of a roadway. So he immediately thought, maybe I was abducted on that. So he sought out Hopkins' help. Yeah, sounds legit. At first, Hopkins was uneasy about working with Kilburn, admitting that his being fearful about a stretch of road was an almost ridiculously flimsy pretext for entering into the costly and time-consuming process of hypnotic regression. Nevertheless, he enlisted the help of a Dr. Gerard Franklin, who hypnotized Kilburn in 1978. Sure enough, under hypnosis, Kilburn recounted a by-then typical tale. His car had been pulled off the road by some strange force, after which he witnessed several small beings who subjected him to a physical examination. After the Kilburn case, Hopkins embraced the notion that someone could have had an abduction experience without remembering any of it. Naturally, this dramatically increased the number of people who could conceivably claim abductions. Any feeling of uneasiness about a place or a piece of time that could not be accounted for 
was grounds for suspicion. It was from this new idea that missing time took its name. If you ever arrived home from a road trip inconceivably late or blacked out for any reason, UFO abduction was a distinct possibility, according to Hopkins. The second startling revelation in Missing Time appears in one of the last chapters, which recounts the encounters of a Virginia Horton. Horton, it seemed, claimed two abduction encounters, which indicated that for some unknown reason the aliens were following her life. The idea that someone might be abducted twice was an entirely new and frightening idea that was just starting to be reported. Betty and Barney Hill, Travis Walton, and most of the other early abductees, with the exception of Betty Andreessen, whose encounters more resembled those of the early contactees, each had but one abduction experience. The abductees appeared to be people who were simply in the wrong place at the wrong time. Aliens had picked them up, conducted some tests, and let them go. The Horton case, however, indicated that aliens might be choosing certain humans for abduction and then monitoring those humans over a period of time. Going to pause for a moment here, folks. So you see the shift now in the idea in the UFO mythos that goes along with this, the alien mythos. So now we go from, yeah, abduction one-time thing to, oh, they follow certain people. They, they periodically take them and... Uh, perhaps, you know, perform experiments on them, or perhaps these people wind up having alien children or have alien hybrids, or they're used in some hybrid program. All of this comes into being here. And that's pretty much the notion that we get through that. And Bud Hopkins had a very crucial role in bringing this type of an experience into the forefront here. So, um... For time constraints, we're just going to drop down to the conclusion here, because basically the rest of this in between uh, this portion and where it comes to the conclusion just talks about some of these different cases that Hopkins was involved in and how the focus has shifted from the benevolent space brothers who come from Venus and Mars and Jupiter and all of that and who have come to warn mankind about the nukes, uh, that the nukes are bad news, man, and they're going to destroy you and don't do this. Uh, that kind of thing, it turned into the abduction phenomena, and not just a one-time thing, but there's actual hybrid programs going on, and these aliens periodically kidnap people and take them aboard their craft and perform all kinds of weird sexual types of operations on them and such things. You know, many things that tie back to, oh, I don't know, occultism and, and stuff like that, sexual rituals and these kind of things that go on and tie back to the idea of some type of a non-human hybrid or a homunculus type of a creature being developed or some such thing. Like I said, I, I wish the occult ties weren't always there, but they always, always are. So that's kind of what that talks about. So let's just scroll down to the conclusion of this for time's sake. So conclusion... UFO stories have evolved at an amazing rate in the last four decades. Kenneth Arnold's simple sighting of a nine strange craft, which many thought might be secret weapons from another country, evolved into sightings of strange creatures around the craft, serving to solidify the notion that they were from outer space. 
Mere sightings of alien beings evolved into the religious Space Brother accounts of the 1950s contactees, and from there to the frightening, seemingly random encounters of Benny and Barney Hill and Travis Walton. The UFO community then decided that a small, gray, big-headed being, the Gray, was their alien of choice and determined that they were abducting Earth people for their sperm and ova. In recent years, a split has occurred among UFO researchers. Most believe that the Greys are evil manipulators, but a growing minority has become convinced that the abductors are serving some higher purpose. Researchers who are interested in new religious movements should monitor UFO groups carefully over the next few years as the two abduction camps fight over control of the overall movement. The UFO subculture provides a unique opportunity to watch a pop culture-inspired religious group in a state of rapid evolution and change. And it is signed here by the author here, whose name was Christopher Bader, Department of Sociology, Bowling Green State University, written here in this journal. So we have, once again, a brief history here of the UFO contactee phenomena. The contactee movement, these people that claimed to have contact with extraterrestrials and the benevolent space brothers, and it took a dark turn from there to abduction phenomena. And we have kind of a mix, a mixed bag of that going on today. Remember, this, this article's from 1995. So at that point, that was before the uh, whole thing with uh, the... Uh, what was that group? Uh, the Heaven's Gate cult took place and all of that. Many things have occurred since this thing was written, but you could just see from that brief history of the earlier years of the modern UFO era that much has been done in terms of social engineering in this way. Uh, we, we could see the rise of the gray alien being accepted as the paradigm here, and that's always promoted today. But I think they're shifting gears a little bit now. So it's not the little gray men that they're worried about. It's the giants. They're shifting the focus to giants. And it's been a slow and subtle change through the past few decades here. But notice this motif. So they're switching from the idea of the little gray alien being the one responsible for abducting people and trying to make human hybrids, you know, this gray creature that kind of would resemble the homunculus of the occult thought forms. Um, they're shifting from this to the giants now. And if you go back in our mythology and you go back in the Bible, into the Genesis chapter 6 experiment, you find giants. They're shifting gears, ladies and gentlemen, with this giants. Giants relates to the idea of the titans in the Greek mythology, the return of the Titans. You see, the people in positions of power in this world today, they consider themselves the Olympians, and their enemies or forebears were the Titans. And we see the return of the Titans for the clash of the Titans here. And the Olympians, of course, want to repeat their victory over the Titans from Greek mythology. So we have this notion going on. If you want to look at it from the esoteric level, and like I said, it always ties back to the occult with this stuff. I wished it didn't, but uh, always does. Now, what this will translate into, into real-world terms, what it'll look like in the real world, remains to be seen. They are pushing this agenda, this notion of the alien bit very hard right now. 
But I suspect, I suspect they're setting us up for something else. And I'll go into that in more detail on some other broadcast. Nothing related to aliens, per se, but a psychological operation getting ready to pull some big type of change in our society. Let's put it that way. Uh, so at any rate, that's all I have for tonight, folks. I appreciate all of you tuning in. We'll catch you next time. Have a good one now. Come with me. Fantasy